Hello and welcome to Chasing Himalayan Dreams, the podcast. My name is Susan and I'm the author of the best-selling book, Chasing Himalayan Dreams. Have you had dreams you put aside? Do you feel a hiking adventure in the Himalayas is a mountain too far? I believe you can do it if you have a moderate fitness and an inability to let your dreams go. This podcast brings you the book. Every episode is a chapter, like an audiobook. I'm using text-to-speech technology to create every episode. So do start listening and enjoy. Escape into the mountains. Bagdogra is an air force base, no photographs allowed. The familiar outlines of grey-green hangars and silver fighter planes in Marshall Rose vanish as we land. A maelstrom erupts in the opening of lockers and frantic grabbing of falling bags. And then the calm as everyone freezes in the aisle till the door opens. We heft our bags down and slip out and down the stairs into the cooling evening air. And we are out, looking for our plastic-wrapped baggage, it was machine-wrapped in Bangalore to protect the various ropes and cords. Why do all backpacks have random cords snaking about? The backpacks jerk about on the belt like demented escaped Egyptian mummies. Raju and Funtsuk are waiting outside for us with a board Keith, Susan, White Magic Tours. Yes, they're as excited as we are to get started on the trek. At least, I hope so. We're about to step into the shining white four-wheel drive, when Funtsuk stops us. We haven't been welcomed properly. He welcomes us with a white silk prayer scarf. Oops only one shawl. I wind it around both of us. Now the same scarf, welcome and blessing encompasses us both. Funtsok drives us out of the dusty car park and through the small clamorous bazaar. We pass the outskirts of Jalpaiguri, fringed with neglected tea gardens, that Raja clarifies is not Darjeeling tea. A touch of hill haughtiness perhaps? Bagdogra has an army cantonment as well as the air force base. We pass familiar sights, and the smart laid-out roads, trimmed hedges and painted borders on tree trunks remind me of many places I called home as an army brat. I've come to one of these houses, before boarding a plane for home when my parents decided they didn't want a 16-year-old girl to navigate four changes of train from Darjeeling to Pune. I never returned, until now. We was past, and into the last stretch of wide flat road before the mountains. I swap places to the front, because I get car sick. Unpleasant memories of road sickness flood back. I'm no longer a penniless student riding in a rickety bus choking with fumes of diesel and petrol from ancient Land Rovers that ply the mountain roads. In less than an hour, the sun glides behind a ridge of the mountains that runs out over the plains. Sunset and my great fear, driving up the steep and winding road in the dark. In the tea-scented dusk we drive between darkened hills with rose-gold edges. The air is already clearer, and in the distance the road winds up the hills through forests and vagrant tea bushes. The change from the plains to the mountains is swift, no gentle meandering over slopes here, it's straight up into a steep ascent. Darkness falls like a cloak and the hills come alive with flickering fireflies. The invisible sky is full of stars and it seems as if we are already skywalking, with stars above us and stars below us. Villages tucked into the crevices of the hills and too tiny to be distinguished by day, twinkle as if the sky had fallen, complete with stars. We went ever upward through steep turns and hairpin curves, and my admiration of Funtsok's driving skills increases. We reach Yong, the first town in the hills. There's continuous traffic, but the driving is smooth. No road rage as the drivers give way to one another, 
The mountains are already refreshing us without aggressive city driving or the boorish drivers of North India. We stop for tea, yes, it is Darjeeling tea. The last shreds of sunlight fade from the plains below. Now it is only the mountains and me. Darjeeling arrives in the dark, no view of Kanchenjunga today, only cars and four-wheel drives scrunched together on the narrow winding roads. Oh yes, and tiny puffing trains hoot in the evening as the drivers clear the engines of coal dust and boiling hot water. It reminds me of my father. Steam engines were the source of many mugs of hot boiling water, for dad to shave. Because of course, a military man could never appear unshaven, not even on a five-day rail journey across India. He would hop off at a stop and walk up to the steam engine. A railway child himself, he knew where to get the hot water from and would stop to chat to the engine drivers. It was also a time of excruciating anxiety for me, as I leant out the window, scanning the platform for Dad returning triumphant, bearing his mug of hot water. News is that the toy train is not functioning. Raj assures me that the Darjeeling Himalayan Rail, DHR, is indeed running, on the short segment between Goom and Darjeeling. The DHR toy train is both a national and a world heritage treasure. Running on narrow-gauge tracks, it was built in the 1880s and the original steam engines still pull the special trains between Goom and Darjeeling on the Bhartasiya loops with unparalleled views of Kanchanjunga. I took the train once, for part of the route, and I can confirm that it is possible to step out, have a cup of tea, and try to catch the train again. But, you cannot claim a refund for the part of the journey where you hopped off. Believe me, I tried. At the traffic light three narrow lanes descend in a chaotic muddle, the traffic cop seems barely afloat above a sea of raucous crawling vehicles. He seems to be chomping something and Foonsok calls out to him. The traffic policeman hands him what he was eating, a hot and sweet jalebi. All you need to calm road rage is jalebis. The policeman did not give me one. Darjeeling is different and the same, as we inch up the narrow roads to Charistha, or the four ways. I might have walked up faster. We turn out of the chaos of the bazaar onto the mall road, and to our hotel, Little Tibet. The mall road on the highest contour on the ridge is familiar territory. We walk down a steep path cut into the hillside to check in. The decor is warm and cozy Tibetan, with prayer wheels down the halls, and silken banners dangling lazily from the ceiling like attenuated curtains. It's only six o'clock, so we head out to check the Darjeeling nightlife. There's no bar, or liquor in the hotel. We're on the hunt for a liquor shop. The larger shops are closed and we plunge down the steep, dark, and narrow lanes. By the time we find one, I'm annoyed because I do not want to spend my first evening in seedy alleys with the possibility of stepping on unfragrant droppings in the dark. We escape back onto Charistha and the mall. We're searching for gloves, as Raju has instructed us, and we buy them at a street vendor's stall. Dark blue fluffy gloves are not a fashion statement but they'll keep our hands warm. On the way down, we pass Glenary's, once the most fashionable place for dining out in Darjeeling. As students, we would come in, sit in the grand dining room and order ice cream, until a grumpy manager stopped us from doing that, without ordering a full meal. He forgot that whenever parents and guardians visited, we would come here for dinner. I decide that my 40-year boycott has to stop now. There's even the forbidden Shalimar Hotel where the food was reputed to be spectacular, but out of bounds for some unarticulated reason. One day I will find out why, I hope. A pair of pie dogs lie beside the gaudy red and gold entrance, hoping for scraps.
On the way back to the hotel, we passed my alma mater, Southfield Ladies College. It's no longer Loretto College. After Mother Damien retired at an advanced age and went back to Ireland, there were no nuns feisty and wise enough to run a college during a long-running political agitation. Both the college hostel and the boarding school at Loretto were shut down in those years. These were the institutions that drew the best and brightest girls from the entire northeast of India. It was where the royal princesses of Nepal and Bhutan rubbed shoulders with ordinary girls, like me, from India, Tibet, Bangladesh, and Nepal. I wonder where they go now, as well as all those girls from Nagaland, Tripura, Assam, and tribal girls from Chhattisgarh. Many of them were the first generation of girls ever to study for a degree, this was an India that I had never experienced before coming here. Also, on the mall, the famous Windermere Hotel, the last vanguard of the British Raj stands silent and lonely in the darkness of the hillside. I had planned to stay there but prices were outrageous. Despite the downturn in traffic they didn't bring their prices down. And I'm not willing to pay ridiculous amounts for colonial nostalgia for a hotel whose name is misspelled to boot. We must have been nerds and geeks, for as students we would lurk about outside to catch glimpses of famous people, not film stars, but authors and historians. There was a minor, ladylike, riot when A. L. Basham, the author of the book The Wonder That Was India visited, and signed only a few copies of the book. I had an assignment due that day and was sitting in the library finishing it when friends snuck out to track him down. I was always a finisher, and in a few days, I will finish what started as a forbidden dream all those years ago. The Windermere has a guest list to impress. Mark Twain, Edmund Hillary, Heinrich Hara, Prince Peter of Greece and the Queen of Sikkim are linked to this place. Hope Cook met the Crown Prince of Sikkim in Windermere's bar and ended up becoming the last Queen of Sikkim. Thomas Merton, the foremost mystic and writer of 20th century Catholicism stayed here briefly, a few weeks before his accidental death in Bangkok at a monastic conference. In his Asian journals, he mentions startling Mother Damien with a visit and a request to use the chapel. I never imagined that there were only two degrees of separation between me and Thomas Merton. It seems like anyone famous stayed at the Windermere. Perhaps I'll stay there too when I'm famous. Looking out at Darjeeling from the mall, the lights are still pretty, but I can't see the hills from this familiar vantage point tonight. Tomorrow, I hope for a vision of the sleeping Buddha. There is never any guarantee that you will see Kanchenjunga and the sleeping Buddha. It is a blessing, not an entitlement. Back at Little Tibet, the articulate young man in reception tells me that the tourist industry is suffering huge losses. We have a long chat about Darjeeling and how it has changed, and how it hasn't. In the spacious dining hall, with Tibetan paintings on the wall, and geometric patterns on the luxurious carpet underfoot, there is only one other table with guests. There's a lot of Chinese food on the menu, that's what you get in Darjeeling. It's Tibetan Chinese food but cooked for Indians in Indo-Chinese style, the spicy flavors suit us fine. Fried rice, sweet and sour chicken and fried momos make for a delicious meal. There's Darjeeling tea with a tea service in our rooms, complete with red dragon encrusted tea mugs, ready for early morning tea. The bad news is that the tea gardens are now so overgrown it will take years for proper Darjeeling tea to come back into the market. Tea bushes are delicate things and cannot take neglect. Raju warns us to be ready for an early departure and after a long luxurious hot bath, I collapse into a dreamless sleep, happy that there is no thundering Himalayan storm tonight. Darjeeling, after all, means, the place of the thunderbolt.
hope you enjoyed this chapter of my book. If you liked it, send me a message or let me know. You can find the ebook or print book on Amazon. Also, there's a free book of Himalayan mandalas for you to color in on my website, susanjaganath.com/freebies. Keep listening. Thank you.